given how serious the right against cruel and unusual punishment is, given how absolute uh, that right seems to be, uh, I think there's all the more reason to um, to express disagreements or, or enforce a high standard for that right to prevent the content of that right from being diluted. Welcome back to Runny Mead Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Before we start this week's interview, I felt that it would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to note that this episode deals with violent and at times disturbing subject matter. At Runnymede, we believe that it's our responsibility to approach these topics and issues rigorously and openly. Nevertheless, listener discretion is advised. On January 29th, 2017, Alexander Bissonnette entered a Quebec City mosque and open-fired on those who were gathered there for worship. Six people were killed. Mr. Bissonnette subsequently pled guilty to 12 criminal charges, including six counts of first-degree murder. The Crown sought to apply Section 745.51 of the Criminal Code, which would have seen Mr. Bissonnette serve his sentences consecutively and with a parole ineligibility period of 25 years for each conviction of murder. In practice, this would have meant that Mr. Bissonnette would not qualify for parole during his lifetime. Mr. Bissonnette challenged this provision on the bases of sections 7 and 12 of the Charter, which respectively guarantee the right to life, liberty, and the security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, and the right not to be subject to cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. Mr. Bissonnette's case eventually made its way before the Supreme Court of Canada, where the court unanimously held in May 2022 that the challenge provision violated Section 12 of the Charter in a manner that could not be justified under Section 1. In today's episode of the podcast, I sit down with Yuan Zhu, a doctoral candidate in international relations and incoming research fellow at the University of Oxford, and Carrie Sun, a Runnymede alumnus and graduate student in law, also at Oxford. Gentlemen, welcome to Runnymede Radio. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. Thank you, Chris. So we're talking about the Supreme Court of Canada's ruling from earlier this year in R&B Sinet, and you've been critical of this case, and you've, uh, you've written a piece for The Spectator critiquing the Supreme Court's ruling, and it you say that the case turns on... Uh, two highly abstract and contestable concepts, human dignity on the one hand and cruel and unusual punishment on the other. So why don't I start by asking this, in your view, are courts the best forum in which to adjudicate what these commitments demand in a free and democratic society? Well, uh, Chris, I don't think that this is a question that can be answered just in the abstract. I think it mm-hmm. all depends on what whether the courts are applying um, traditional legal juridical techniques to the question of whether something infringes uh, a particular conception of human dignity or a particular conception of cruel and unusual. And so the question of is it the courts that are the best suited to answer these questions really depends on the, the institutional competences mm-hmm. that they have. The courts are, of course, um, have a superior uh, claim to 
uh, interpret legal questions, mm -hmm. interpret um, common law questions, apply their expertise in that regard. Um, but um, one of the troubling things about the Bissonnette judgment is it seems to apply a, a highly contestable uh, conception of human dignity to this question of uh, what are the limits uh, uh, to punishment under the Charter. Mm -hmm. Juan, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I think I agree with Kerry here. I'll just add this, right? Uh, there's a tendency by many apex court judges, and uh, certainly I think we can say that the Supreme Court of Canada is especially bad in this regard. There's a tendency by many judges to view a sort of a freshman university um, uh, liberal theory as uh, as part of uh, as, as part of the common law, but uh, uh, right uh, as Kerry said, just. Concept, uh, uh, those concepts here are incredibly uh, complex ones. They are highly disputed ones, and there are many competing visions. Uh, and yet, whenever this court of Canada engages in this sort of moral analysis, they inevitably default to a very simplistic mm -hmm. understanding of them, which is normal, normal because nobody in the court is a philosopher, nobody in the court is an ethicist. They are lawyers who are very good mm -hmm. at being lawyers, but being good at law is not the same as being good at moral philosophy, or indeed, if uh, as Kerry pointed out, there's a question of institutional competence. If we wanted the court, the Supreme Court, to adjudicate a morality, why don't we appoint philosophers instead of judges who vaguely remember some uh, political theory from the undergraduate years? Uh, this was a point instantly made many years ago by, uh, I think, Justice Laforet in mm -hmm. the first survey case, I could be wrong on the, uh, the judge, mm -hmm. where, uh, where the majority grounded its decision on a very Lockean or very traditional liberal vision of, of morality. And this dissent said, well, you know, this vision of morality might be very wise. It may, it, it may be correct. It is not part of the laws of Canada. And that is an important point to remember. The Constitution does not embody um, a particular schools of moral philosophy, except to, to the extent that his text does. And it doesn't do very much of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thinking about, you know, Carrie, picking up on your point, this idea of, uh, institutional competency and, and the normally preeminent role that the courts uh, will play in legal uh, interpretation. Uh, you know, it, it sounds like we're kind of getting closer to this, uh, this idea here of coordinate interpretation, which we'll come back to later because we want to talk a little bit about how Section 32 of the Charter, the notwithstanding clause, applies to this case. But if we can just maybe um, on this idea of human dignity very, being a very contestable concept, I think we would do well to unpack uh, how the court discusses and defines that concept in this case. And so as it's discussing that, the court stated in its ruling in Bissonnet uh, that, quote, the foundations of our criminal justice system require respect for the inherent worth of every individual, including the vilists of criminals, end quote. So again, bearing in mind that we've just said that human dignity is a very contestable concept, uh, what do you think of what the court has said here? Do you agree with the general sentiment in terms of how it's broadly defining this idea? Uh, yeah, Chris, I think everyone agrees that when you state it at such an abstract level that the criminal justice system has to require respect for the inherent, the equal inherent worth of every individual, I think we would all agree on that proposition. The problem is the direction in which the Supreme Court um, elaborates on this notion specifically, because the concept of inherent worth can be understood in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. One way is to recognize that encapsulated in this notion of dignity and equal worth is the idea that individuals ought to be treated in principle as 
autonomous beings capable of making free choices, uh, including ones to commit criminal acts, and um, uh, being subject to moral responsibility as a result of that. So in other words, the ascription of criminal responsibility and the imposition of punishment on a criminal is a reflection of the law's understanding that each person has that capacity to exercise freedom. The mm -hmm. criminal's committed uh, a criminal act, he's exercised his freedom wrongly, therefore it's proper to impose punishment in order to negate or rectify this wrongful exercise of freedom. And that, you could say, is a view that is uh, also rooted in the concept of human dignity that flows from ideas of human dignity. But in contrast to this understanding, the court in Bissell Bissonnette has gone a different decision. It justified its decision by claiming that whole life sentences, um, uh, life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. It claims that these sentences deny offenders any moral autonomy by depriving them of the possibility of reintegration. So the argument here seems to be that human dignity mandates that every single offender, no matter what their circumstances are, are uh, have to be offered a, a chance at rehabilitation, a realistic possibility of parole uh, mm -hmm. under the criminal justice system. But the court never explains why it takes such a um, blinkered view of the concept of autonomy. For the court, it seems to be the case that autonomy matters uh, only at the rehabilitation stage, only at the sentencing stage, when it comes to considering this uh, goal of rehabilitation, but not at the not not in terms of the objectives of denunciation or retribution, which flow from the need to recognize that this is an act that comes from somebody's exercise of their autonomy and and their free will. Yes, uh, and uh, I will just add this: uh, in our article, we I think made the point that um, uh, human dignity, yes, uh, stated at this very general level, of course, nobody could object with such a noble sentiment. The problem is, that, uh, is how you apply it. And in this case, I think there is a issue whereby the court really has neglected the question of the dignity uh, uh, of the victims, right? Uh, uh, sometimes you cannot read those two uh, in a way which is compatible. And here it seems, that, it seems to us that the court really has gone, uh, uh, has taken a very single-sided view of things. Of course, it begins the judgment by adding a few paragraphs, which were almost apologetic, saying, you know, none of this is meant to, to take away from the suffering of the victim, and so on and so on. But uh, at, at some point, uh, we have to recognize, I think, and, you know, Kerry might disagree, but I think, for me, speaking for me personally, um, it is important for societies to recognize that there are some acts which are so monstrous that only the highest punishment will be sufficient to vindicate the uh, uh, the collective moral sentiment of society and uh, uh, and uh, and uh, the dignity of the victims. This is the most serious crime we can imagine. It is six murders, six political murders committed for a despicable reason, uh, and uh, a sentence of twenty-five to life, which is this standard sentence for simple murder, what simple quote unquote, simply is not sufficient to express this sense of moral outrage a society has very naturally. This is not cruel and, and unusual. This is not. Uh, over the top, this is, uh, uh, this is um, uh, simply a, a reflection of the nature of the act. Yeah, mm -hmm. let me let me just pick up on what yeah, please. said as well in terms of there being uh, acts that are so monstrous that they do attract um, punishments that, that may uh, encompass 
um, life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. I, I absolutely agree with that. And one of the reasons for this is the principle of proportionality. Now, quite often, um, Canadian courts have been very fond of positing the proportionality principle as kind of a limiting function on the severity of crimes. Right. Um, it's not nearly, uh, the proportionality principle isn't nearly a limiting principle. It's actually uh, a regulative principle of criminal sentencing. That means that when the severity of the crime increases, then logically the um, severity of the punishment um, that's needed to negate or denounce the crime um, uh, has to increase as well. And so there's this flip side of the coin that it seems that the court in Bissonnette um, uh, either neglected or or didn't think was worth emphasizing, um, and and I would find that quite troubling. It's it's interesting this this idea of proportionality, as you're you're noting, uh, it, it cuts both ways, and of course we largely have um, articulated this concept of proportionality within the context of, of section one of the charter. And uh, it, it's been said, um, Derek Ross and Brian Bird have made this point in in some of their scholarship uh, that. That section one serves a dual purpose. We typically tend to think of section one as providing a basis on which the state uh, can limit uh, rights and freedoms, but of course section one also serves as an activation of those rights and freedoms. But the point that it sounds like you're making here is that to understand proportionality, it really does, depending on the context, we need to bear in mind the ways in which proportionality um, can, can cut either way. That's right. One of the things that um the the court was quick to add um, later in its reasons in Bissonnette was the claim that it wasn't placing the objective of rehabilitation above other sentencing objectives. It wasn't constitutionalizing effectively right. the rehabilitation objective as a constitutional uh, objective of sentencing. And um, and I think uh, to some extent the court may have missed the point here because. Um, on the one hand, of course, the court doesn't see itself as um, departing from the principle of proportionality between the severity of the sentence mm -hmm. and the gravity of the offense and the blameworthiness of the offender on the other hand, right? Uh, um, the, the sentence has to be proportional to the desert of the offender. On the other hand, however, um, it, the result of Bissonnette is that in these cases of multiple murders, effectively what we currently have now is a cap uh, in terms of a 25-year maximum uh, period of parole and eligibility. And beyond that, uh, it's an open question how much further you can go before it would be held to violate Section 12. And so that does place a cap on the application of the proportionality principle, and arguably it does in fact elevate uh, rehabilitation above the other sentencing objectives. So Juan, I wanna get your uh, your take on this, but I'm gonna actually read the quote uh, or the portion of the judgment uh, to which Carrie just referred and then maybe um, kind of uh, inverse the question a little bit. So this is what the court held, quote, the intent here is not to give the objective of rehabilitation, sorry, rather the intent here is not to have the objective of rehabilitation prevail over all the others, but rather to preserve a certain place for it in a penal system based on respect for the inherent dignity of every individual. 
Where the offense of first-degree murder is concerned, rehabilitation is already subordinate to the objectives of denunciation and deterrence, as can be seen from the severity of the punishment." End quote. So, Carrie, you've responded a little bit to this already, but I wonder, Juan, if we can kind of turn the, the question around a bit to ask whether, um, if, if certainly what the court is doing here is, is stipulating where uh, rehabilitation is to fall within the uh, order of priorities, do you think the charter requires any specific uh, objectives within the sentencing regime? Oh, um, uh, the short answer is no, right? Uh, and that goes perhaps to, my, uh, uh, to, point, to the point I made earlier. Uh, the Constitution uh, is, uh, should not be held, unless it is very explicit in doing so, should, should not be held to uh, to constitutionalize certain specific and particular moral views. Now, of course, no document, not even a constitutional one, is entirely free from one's context and to its language. And in this case, uh, there is a case to be made that certain parts of the 1982 constitutional settlement, especially perhaps the preamble, do uh, do um, uh, 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 require the rest uh, 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 of the charter to be read uh, in harmony. Uh, now, uh, if one accepts this, uh, 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 I certainly want to accept, for instance, the value of democratic society uh, mm-hmm. uh, as one of the fundamental principles because it is textual. I still don't think it gets, gets us anywhere near the uh, question of sentencing. Sentencing is, as judges always tell us, is highly context-specific, back-dependent. Uh, uh, and uh, it, it seems rather ridiculous that uh, uh, for an apex court to uh, run roughshod over what Parliament clearly and deliberately decided in this regard. Uh, I'm glad that the court said it wasn't constitutionalizing uh, rehabilitation, but uh, I think reading their judgment, it is hard to come to that conclusion. And the other thing one might add is that even if one looks at the preamble um, or, and other such interpretive aids, so to speak, uh, uh, courts have been very flexible in how to have uh, pick, and, pick and choose some of them and uh, not others of them. Uh, we forget that, for instance, the 1982 Constitution begins uh, with, uh, uh, with the acknowledgement of the supremacy of God, which mm-hmm. the Kingdom courts have steadfastly refused to recognize, even when as uh, uh, even as they have been deriving other grandiose principles from the rest of the preamble and indeed mm-hmm. the preamble of 1867. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 the court is playing very has the tradition of playing very um, uh, fast, uh, fast and loose with this uh, uh, with this broader structural uh, interpretive aids and uh, uh, and that in my view is really sort of a symptom of the of the culture of judicial supremacy we have in Canada and which which we have accepted is of the mirror for forty years. Mm-hmm. Well, and and on, and on that issue, yeah, just as a little bit of a sidebar, of course, on the difficulties of uh, incorporating uh, or, or understanding the meaning of the supremacy of God within the preamble to the charter, there's been some interesting scholarship on that. Bruce Ryder wrote a paper years ago, and I believe more recently Dwight Newman and John Sikama had uh, papers on this in the uh, LexisNexis collection, The Forgotten Foundations of the Canadian Constitution. But uh, Carrie, I wonder if we might return to your earlier point regarding institutional competency and thinking about, okay, the charter doesn't, as one was was just arguing, require or demand specific objectives in sentencing. Does this mean conversely that parliament ought to be given untrammeled authority over which principles ought to be considered in sentencing and which principles ought to prevail over others? I think in principle, yes. Uh, I mean, subject, of course, 
to the current law that we have on Section 7, which um, applies the test of gross disproportionality. And, mm -hmm. and that is a very generous margin of appreciation that mm -hmm. Parliament has to determine where on the scale of offenses and penalties things should sit. And that is a kind of decision that you would think when, when we're, we're dealing with the criminal law, which expresses the fundamental moral values of our society and the infractions that, that um, equally reflect and express and communicate those values, that is something that ought to be left in principle to the legislature uh, uh, to, to address. Right. So, yeah, so you just referenced there the, the obviously the principles of fundamental justice within the concept of Section 7 and specifically of gross disproportionality. But to, to not get too abstract and hypothetical here, I'd be curious for your thoughts on when uh, a law will constitute uh, cruel and unusual punishment contrary to Section 12. So you, you disagree here that uh, Section 745.sub1 uh, of the Criminal Code had violated Section 12. But as a hypothetical, what do you think uh, would, would pass over that threshold? So far be it for me to lay out a comprehensive theory of uh, Section 12 in this podcast, but yeah. I can think of at least two you know, standards or tests that you might apply, neither of which would find that um, the, the, the provision in this case uh, is cruel and unusual punishment. The first, of course, is the test of gross disproportionality. Would the sentencing provision mm -hmm. lead to the imposition of a sentence that is grossly disproportionate to the, the wrongfulness and the harmfulness of the crime and the circumstances of the offender? And in this case, when you're dealing with a multiple murder, it, it, it seems to me to, to be unintelligible to argue that that um, uh, life imprisonment without the possibility of parole is ought, ought to be off the table because these crimes are uh, are are extremely serious and and heinous and they merit the maximum uh, amount of sanction that that the criminal justice system can afford. The the second potential standard that you might apply to determine whether something is cruel and unusual is some have argued that this phrase refers to things that. Um, historically were uh, unknown to the common law, uh, mm -hmm. back when the common law regulated um, criminal offenses and criminal sentencing. And, and so a, a kind of a type of punishment that would be, that has never been tried before that would in fact be considered cruel and unusual. And of course, the, the concept of life imprisonment is very well known um, to the law, and I, I just don't think that that would fall under under that rubric either. And and so then there's the third uh, approach, which is the one that the court in Bissonnette took, which, which uh, uh, applied the standard of whether or not it's inherently degrading or dehumanizing to apply this kind of treatment. Here, I think that there's a highly arguable case that far from being dehumanizing, the application of punishment in, in these kinds of cases where there was a premeditated um, a decision to commit these murders is a reflecting back mm. uh, on the offender of their humanity in the, in the form of their decision to, to exercise an autonomous choice mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and commit these killings. 
Mm-hmm. This is a really important point because uh, uh, in uh, morality and moral good only makes sense if there uh, there is the opposite. There is no good without evil, and it seems that by treating uh, Bissonnette uh, uh, as uh, as the product of uh, 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 somebody who was not an autonomous uh, uh, moral agent who fully consciously went about procuring his weapons and his ammunitions, walked to the mosque. And pulled the trigger not once, not twice, not three, not four, five, but six times, and he, and he did more than that. Uh, I think actually this actually, in a way, perversely denies his uh, own moral agency and his own uh, uh, own moral worth. Uh, insofar as uh, we can even speak in those terms, it treats him as a child in, in many ways, as somebody who is not responsible for his for his actions. Mm. And it's, I would say, I think that's emblematic of the liberal utilitarian presuppositions that are underlying the court's judgment right. that when it looks only or, or, or predominantly to forward-looking considerations like rehabilitation and public safety to the neglect of um, the reasons why that we are sentencing and, and the criminal justice system is punishing an individual in the first place, which is their, their exercise of, of free will, uh, as Yuan has pointed out. So let's let's talk about that for a minute and, and maybe kind of uh, broaden the scope of our consideration here from the specifics of this case and the specific uh, criticisms that you're making against this, this ruling and, uh, and talk about what you uh, argue as being the underlying worldview of the court as being liberal and utilitarian. And in respect to your piece, you both write that uh, quote that even the most learned judges can err from time to time, end quote. And over the past few years, much has been made of the supposed blocks or camps that have been emerging on the Supreme Court, particularly uh, during the uh, Richard Wagner era. And this has been contrasted with uh, the time when uh, Beverly McLaughlin was chief justice on the Supreme Court, and it was much more common to see unanimous rulings and, and rulings by the court. But this has been something that has become less common, it seems, over the past few years. And obviously, there have been certain takes on, on what is going on here. Some of them, uh, in my view, are, are less compelling than others. Uh, uh, Professor Gerard Kennedy wrote, I think, a pretty compelling piece uh, for The Hub several months back about perhaps uh, what is actually going on here and, and what these blocks uh, these supposed so-called blocks on the courts represent. But I want to ask you whether it surprises you that this ruling was unanimous. And, and related to that, in what ways should the court's unanimity, again, something that has become fairly uncommon over the past few years, how should that unanimity inform our criticism of this particular ruling? Uh, I think it was indeed surprising uh, to see a unanimous judgment in this case um, for at least two reasons. The first is that, um, like with many areas of the law, as you've mentioned, this is an area where members of the court have previously expressed um, differing judicial philosophies about the philosophy of criminal sentencing and past decisions. So I'm thinking of cases going back to 2015, like Newer, uh, KRJ, Boudreaux, Paranto more recently, where there were a number of splits on the court that could be traced to differing outlooks on the purpose of criminal sentencing. Mm-hmm. So that was surprising. The, the second reason that I, I think um, it's surprising is that it is the number of internal inconsistencies in the court's reasons that Yuan and I have uh, written about in our piece. And, and so just to give you one illustration of where the court is being inconsistent. 
At several points in the judgment, um, Chief Justice Wagner emphasizes that the charter requires that every offender should have the opportunity to reform and be reintegrated into society, every offender. But then elsewhere in the judgment, he reaffirms an earlier precedent from a 1990 case called Luxton. And in Luxton, the Supreme Court had held that it doesn't violate the charter for an elderly offender to be subject to a 25-year parole ineligibility period, even though um, it's likely that that offender would die before they, they become eligible for parole. So the courts being inconsistent and unclear on whether elderly offenders are entitled to a chance at rehabilitation under under the, uh, the decision in, in Bissonnette, or, and why or why not that's the case. So a number of um, people have um, in the past have criticized the court for fractured judgments, as you've noted. Um, they've argued that like uh, a unanimous judgment lays out the law clearly and provides legal certainty. But I think in this case, you what, what you end up having is a unanimous judgment with several internal inconsistencies that impact the intelligibility of the reasoning and that make it difficult to apply it in future cases. And one potential reason is maybe there are incompletely theorized compromises, uh, agreements between different members of the court that, that kind of dilute the coherence and intelligibility of the unanimous judgment. And it might be a case where uh, if you had had a dissent, um, that would actually have the paradoxical effect of making the majority judgment uh, more clear. Juan, I want to get your take on this, but just picking up on some of what Carrie's talking about here between uh, the value of dissent, I wonder as well whether this might have been a case where uh, concurring judgments might have been helpful. Certainly, it seems that uh, the court's proclivity towards uh, concurring judgments have uh, has decreased over time, whereas at one point in time it was it was quite common, and most judgments uh, were concurring. And it, you know, the criticism of that is that it made it more difficult to determine what the majority holding uh, was. Whereas now we don't tend to see concurring judgments as often. They do obviously. Uh, occur from time to time in, in significant rulings such as Trinity Western, for example. But um, Juan, do you think in response to what Carrie just said that uh, there, it might have been helpful here if in the very least we had had some concurring judgments that articulated different uh, conceptions uh, or slightly divergent views of the issues that were at the core of this case? Absolutely. Uh, as Lord Diplock said in the 80s, the common law is not a mortal way, but a maze. And this is especially true for cases which reach the Supreme Court, which my hopes by definition are the tough cases on which a variety of uh, intelligent internal consistent views might be expressed. Now, um, it is less the case under, uh, uh, under the chief justiceship of, uh, uh, of Mr. Justice Wagner, but certainly under the previous chief justice, there was this obsession with uh, collegiality and, and, and unanimity. After not think collegiality is something judges should strive for, judges take an oath to the king and to uphold justice for the rich and the poor without fear or favor. That is their duty. That is why we pay them so much. That is why we uh, we bow to them. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they do not, uh, the primary concern of a judge should be to expound the law uh, as it exists and to develop it when, uh, when suitable within the parameters of what is allowed by the common law and by parliament and the constitution. Their job is not to be pleasant socially to each other. Uh, and I think this obsession with collegiality, with the internal uh, relationship with the court, or indeed with the uh, with the institutional legitimacy of the court, which I think is also uh, not a relevant consideration, are uh, are forcing uh, judges to um, 
to look over, to discard uh, errors in which they disagree, or indeed where they agree, but for different reasons, and that leaves the development of the law uh, 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 in diminished state that makes for worse judgment. This is this is clearly a very lazy judgment with many inconsistencies, which we, we don't have time to fully go over. Uh, now, uh, back in the day, um, the, the, uh, the, the judges of the King's Bench in England used to, when they assembled as a body, used to give their opinions and assert him after the other. So that each one uh, would speak uh, a, a bit, even if they actually agreed in substance with the conclusions, they would add the little contribution. And this was a custom which was followed in the, uh, in the uh, appellate committee of the House of Lords, which existed until a decade ago in the UK, where because it was technically parliament, every judge would have to stand up if only to say I agree with the reasons of my learned friend, Lord such and such. Uh, I think the, uh, uh, we that perhaps uh, reintroduce that in Canada, although this this is actually what the Supreme Court used to do, I think we should uh, affirm very clearly that dissent and concurrent, con and concurrent decisions are good things. They do not confuse anybody. Um, uh, and if they do, you know, it's lawyers who uh, always uh, crave uh, simplicity and authoritativeness should simply read more. This is a uh, uh, serious business. It's, it's interesting, you know, we're obviously getting outside of the specifics of this particular uh, case, but that's fine. And, and, you know, Juan, you make the point that it's not the job of judges or courts to be uh, collegial. But I, but I wonder if uh, this uh, emphasis on, uh, on, on not having um, concurring opinions and, and, you know, until a few years ago, the, the real um, push that the court had under Chief Justice McLaughlin to have these unanimous decisions stems from this attitude that somehow disagreeing uh, over the law or disagreeing in our approaches to the law is somehow inherently uh, uncollegial. Uh, what do you make of that? Do you think that there, this stems from a broader um, lack of, of comfort that we have within the profession and perhaps the academy to grapple with differing conceptions of the law? Oh, I mean, this is a big question, but yes, absolutely. There has been, it, it seems to me, a real cultural change when, uh, uh, where, um, where these professions and indeed many other professions are concerned, where disagreement, uh, which is the lifeblood of any serious intellectual pursuit, has become pathologized, mm -hmm. uh, and where opinions beyond a very narrow range of things has become uh, has become verboten. In this case, for instance, right, uh, the arguments turned on uh, uh, matters of great moral import, cruel and unusual, dignity, and so on. And perhaps there was a sense where that, uh, and, I'm, uh, and, and not that I'm merely speculating here, maybe there was a sense that because uh, of the subject matter that disagreeing was uh, tantamount to really taking human dignity a bit less seriously than you should. Uh, and, uh, and that is a very unhealthy attitude. Uh, Moreover, I think this has quite a lot to do as well, as I said earlier, with the obsession about institutional uh, uh, prestige, really institutional uh, 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 credibility. The court in past years has constitutionalized itself. It's not done reference. Uh, the court is not a constitutionally established court. There's a power to establish, to, uh, to establish the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not a constitutionally established court. The court has acquired, uh, as may have seen recently, a new flag, which they fly in lieu of the national flag. They have acquired a, a new coat of arms, uh, or, or, and so on. Uh, and I think this really speaks, oh, and of course, the Chief Justice, uh, with all the due respect, has been giving very long press conferences and, uh, and so on. And of course, retired justices have been frequently called to basically uh, uh, act as legal advisors, uh, mm -hmm. uh, slash, some might say, uh, uh, being paid very handsomely to launder certain decisions. So I think there is a real problem whereby the Supreme Court, like many elite institutions, has really taken this view that uh, uh, the outward external 
prestige of the institution is much more important than actually doing mm. their job. That combined with the narrowing of the range of moral opinions, which are considered acceptable, has, I think, created a perfect storm. This dovetails well in, into my next question, and, and Carrie, I'd be curious for your thoughts on this, but going back to the specifics of uh, the Bisonet case for a moment, it was really it was interesting that the Attorney General made no arguments during its submissions regarding justification under Section 1 of the Charter. Now, we can only speculate, uh, but why do you think this is the case? Well, Chris, I think that that particular decision was probably aligned with the prevailing wisdom on uh, charter argument and adjudication, um, which which holds that normally it's quite difficult to justify a limitation of the right um, mm -hmm. against cruel and unusual punishment. Um, that said, of course, when the courts have so lowered the threshold on what qualifies as a prima facie infringement of Section 12, perhaps this is an area where the Attorney General um, needs to consider whether it's worthwhile to start mounting a justification argument. One of the obstacles to doing so is that if you're on the track of um, being faced with a case where a law is being challenged as um, a grossly disproportionate punishment, as opposed to the other track of Section 12, which is about uh, intrinsically degrading punishments. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about grossly disproportionate punishments and the court has found a prima facie infringement of Section 12 on that basis, it is quite conceptually difficult to argue now that the, uh, that, that law should nevertheless pass the Oaks proportionality, proportionality analysis right. under Section 1. So um, there is similar arguments have been made with regard to Section 7 and to a lesser extent, Section right, 15. Right. Absolutely. So to some extent, given the internal structure of the charter right, it's mm -hmm. been argued that the Section 1 analysis is essentially redundant, which makes it all the more important to think about um, the, the internal scope of these rights and not leave everything to Section 1, where we're no longer dealing with the nuances of each uh, particular charter right and what it means and what it demands, but we're dealing with this general proportionality inquiry where we're weighing potentially incommensurable values against each other. Right. Uh, and, 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 well, and Juan, I'll, I'll, I want to get your thoughts on this, but I'll just add this is a point that uh, Professor Jamie Cameron from Osgood has made within the context of Section 2B, where Section 2B has been so widened that conceptually virtually all nonviolent expression will receive that prima facie protection under Section 2B, and, and most of these cases are now primarily dealt with under Section 1, which has led to uh, the rise of these concepts of so-called high and, and low-value speech. So kind of with that in mind, and, and digging down a little bit into some of the other points that you make in your spectator piece, Juan, is this what you, this phenomenon, is this what you and Carrie are referring to when you write that the Supreme Court has become, quote, the super legislature to which Canadian politicians have outsourced their moral judgment, end quote. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, i just go back to the section one point uh, uh, for a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Michael Foran at the University of Glasgow has made the same point uh, in, in that very often uh, uh, um, uh, the, the inquiry into the scope of rights has been replaced by sort of a lazy test of section one justification. So you mentioned these speech cases. Well, that's, that's a perfect example. For instance, it was a case where the Supreme Court held that it was free speech to uh, 
to precise uh, child pornography were assimilated in child pornography. Uh, and that went to section one, where, of course, it was justified, uh, 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 the infringement of that right was justified. Whereas I think an equally, if not much more, both intuitive and justifiable approach would be to say, well, let's look at the scope of the right. Does uh, the right of free speech broadly construed include the right to possess uh, such images? And I think uh, 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 very possibly the answer should, should and would be no. Uh, once, once you abandon the, uh, uh, this quest of, uh, of, the, of, of scope, then everything becomes the right and everything becomes balancing. And the balancing of, of obviously is uh, it's quite nebulous. I happen to think that you can really, you know, as a law, uh, as a judge in an appellate court who has a good lawyer, you can basically, you can basically just try to uh, mount an intelligent justification balance for literally anything. Balancing is not a scientific test, and that gives huge amounts of power to the uh, 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 to whoever is doing it, which in this case in Parliament. Very often we see examples of Parliament declining to act and just waiting for somebody to go to to go to, to go to Supreme Court. And then politicians can say, well, right. the court has spoken. That is a profoundly unhealthy attitude, uh, which leads to the atrophy of parliament. It leads to the atrophy of the executive power uh, mm -hmm. uh, whenever prescribed uh, uh, as being traditionally being part of the executive's uh, uh, domain. It's, it's back to democracy, really. Mm -hmm. um, why don't we talk then a little bit about uh, this idea of uh, um, Section 33? and how this plays into it. And you've both articulated opinions on section 33 of the charter in the past, the so-called <laughs> notwithstanding clause. Uh, and in response to the court's rulings, uh, several candidates, or they were at the time candidates for leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, including Pierre Polyev, who as of this past weekend is now the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and the leader of His Majesty's Royal, uh, loyal opposition, uh, contemplated it promised to invoke Section 33 if given the opportunity to, uh, in response to the Bissonnette ruling. Now, for the time being, uh, Attorney General and Justice Minister David Lametti seems to have ruled out recourse to Section 33, even though he has stated that he, in fact, disagrees with the court's reasons. Uh, you both have strong opinions on Section 33, so I'll just put it to you. Is this such a case where Section 33 should be invoked? Um, yeah, so the um, it's a complicated question in this particular case, Chris. Mm -hmm. So in general, I'm on record uh, in a paper with Stefan Serafin and Xavier Menard as arguing that the notwithstanding clause is a mechanism of coordinate interpretation that and that whenever Section 33 is invoked, that is not the same. Uh, it's not tantamount to the legislature negating or overriding rights so much as deciding to give a particular right or a specification that differs from uh, a specification of that right that the judiciary has given it. And, and so in general, I would say that when courts, including the apex court, have erred on a matter of constitutional interpretation of a right, it can be legitimate for the legislature to invoke section 33 to correct what it regards as a legal error. And considering the internal tensions in the reasoning in Bissonnette and the practical difficulties it occasions, I think this would likely meet the criteria for Section 33. The mechanism is there to allow Parliament to express its strong, fervent disagreement with the court's interpretation of the Charter. Um, but in this particular case, there are some reasons why it's not feasible to use uh, Section 33, because of how the law on cruel and unusual punishment and the doctrine of res judicata and criminal sentences interact. 
So there's mm -hmm. there's two points I, I want to make. The first is uh, it has to do with retroactivity. So obviously for Mr. Bissonnette and other offenders who benefit from the Bissonnette decision, Parliament would have to retroactively legislate appropriate sentences for those offenders, which mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting anyone should do because it's generally mm -hmm. odious to impose punishments retroactively. Mm -hmm. The second point is even if Parliament were to invoke Section 33 going forward, it would be necessary for it to renew the Section 33 declaration every five years before the sunset period ends. If that declaration is not renewed, then any offender that's sentenced to a whole life sentence under right. that law would be eligible to apply for relief. And, and that has to do with that doctrine of res judicata. Normally, it, res judicata yeah. says that if you're convicted under and, and sentenced under a law that's subsequently found to be unconstitutional, um, you, the, the doctrine precludes you from challenging your conviction if all your appeals have already been exhausted. That's how it would work normally. But in 2018, the Supreme Court decided in a case called Boudreaux that the doctrine doesn't apply where a sentence violates Section 12 of the Charter because offenders who are subject to cruel and unusual punishment suffer a continuing infringement of their Section 12 rights. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they can apply for relief without being barred by res judicata as a result. And specifically, the court in Bissonnette pointed to um, this decision and reaffirmed that as a result of uh, Boudreau, um, if the section the, if the section 33 declaration ever lapsed, the implication is an offender would be entitled to apply to, to set aside that parole and eligibility period. Right. Juan, what's, yeah, what's your take on this one? Uh, I agree with Kerry that uh, given the well-established and it is correct uh, a, a prohibition and taboo around the idea of retroactive punishment that probably nothing Parliament can do will uh, 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 reinstate the proper sentence, in our view, um, passed against Bissonnette and the other people who are freed as a result uh, of who, 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 sorry, who, uh, who gained parole eligibility and who may be one day freed as a result of the business decision. Uh, I do think that the parliament should still invoke the notwithstanding clause for a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, uh, going forward, I think there is value in uh, make sure that future Bissonnettes uh, are properly imprisoned. Now, of course, the, the declaration, as Kerry points out, will have to be renewed every five years. But one imagines that any government which does not undertake to renew uh, the very uh, period would suffer from backlash, uh, the backlash coming from uh, a given parole eligibility to a range of very nasty people who have been sentenced. Uh, uh, and so on. So I'm a political, a political constitutionalist, and that means that I think that, that politics, uh, uh, the political branches of the state should have primacy and be the drivers. And in this case, I think the, uh, given the po enormous political cost which would uh, come from that, uh, uh, that future governments and future parliaments would be, I think, anyone hopes, careful about uh, uh, not renewing the period. Secondly, of course, what we want here is not to simply complain. Complaining is easy, uh, but, uh, uh, but, has, uh, but at some point since the Supreme Court um, uh, not infrequently overturns its uh, previous precedents and its previous decisions, there's no reason to believe that with enough political pressure and, uh, uh, and settled disapproval that the Supreme Court, which is after all so sensitive to the changing moves of the Canadian, uh, of Canadian society, uh, would not eventually uh, reverse course, though perhaps with a different right. conclusion. Uh, so I think it, it is absolutely worthwhile doing, even uh, even if it will not 
uh, alas, uh, restored the uh, punishment which is due to Bissonnette in this case. So, right. uh, uh, so it's the Bissonnette case on its own, and there are the broader considerations which are engaged with the invocation of Section 33. And finally, I would just add this very quickly, Section 33, like most laws, has an expressive value. In this case, the expressive value would be to, to disapprove of what our judges are doing. And I think that is something which really needs to emphasize. It's, it is one thing to complain television about uh, about the autonomous uh, judges in Ottawa. It is another thing for Parliament meeting in its corporate capacity to do the same. I think that is a powerful uh, uh, expression and one which uh, hopefully would have some effect in the future jurisprudence of the court. Mm -hmm. you, you've both discussed the, the practical obstacles that come with invoking Section 33 in this particular case, as you've you know laid out, given the, uh, the nature of the five-year sunset clause. And I, I guess we'll just conclude on this point. Um, would you have concern about the precedent that it might be laid by invoking Section 33, specifically with regard to Section 12? Uh, obviously, the federal parliament has never invoked uh, Section 33 before, and so invoking the clause with regard to what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment would be uh, quite a statement uh, for the first statement for how Parliament might attend to use the clause using forward. And, and of course, we might say that it's uh, it's a very different thing to invoke uh, Section 33 with regard to sections such as uh, Section 7 or Section 12, as opposed to Section 2B. It's, it's one thing to, uh, to have coordinate interpretation about uh, what constitutes free expression, but perhaps another for what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. So how would you respond to potential concerns about the precedent that might be set by invoking Section 33 in these cases? I would say, Chris, that when we're faced with these kinds of precedent setting arguments, um, particularly when it comes to Section 33, we ought to look beyond the procedural label like Section 12, Cruel and Unusual Punishment, look beyond the procedural label and look at the substantive merits of what the invocation of Section 33 is meant to achieve and the reasons for doing it, uh, the moral reasons, the legal reasons for invoking Section 33 to express a disagreement with the court's interpretation of that charter right. Um, and in this case, from a legal perspective, I think there's a strong case that there are some flaws in the reasoning mm -hmm. in the court's judgment. And, uh, and there's um, equal, uh, e an equally strong case for an alternative interpretation of mm -hmm. Section 12 that wouldn't have led to the invalidity of, of the sentencing provision. And certainly from, uh, from a pure moral perspective, detached from any legal considerations, if there is such a thing, uh, quite, quite simply, um, the, the principle of proportionality seems to demand that in this case, a higher sentence be visited upon uh, the offender in, in, in such a, a, a heinous case. Mm -hmm. uh, Juan, uh, we'll, we'll give you the final word. Uh, I mean, I totally agree. Uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, as Kerry said earlier, right, uh, uh, a cruel and unusual, um, uh, 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 just as grossly disproportionate, is actually a very high bar, right? Cruel mm -hmm. and unusual is, uh, is an expression which uh, has, firstly, uh, historical antecedents, so it should be viewed in light of that. And secondly, of course, there's a textual element. It's cruel and unusual. Right. So it is actually a very high bar. Uh, uh, and 
or I realize this might not be a hugely popular thing to say. I don't think, for instance, that, uh, that this prohibition uh, would prohibit the Parliament from legalizing the death penalty. Indeed, the charter itself specifically refers to the, to the possibility of death penalty uh, uh, as a deprivation of life, and the, the Supreme Court has never gone so far as to hold that it is uh, a, a violation of Section 12 to have capital punishment in the books. Uh, I understand the concerns about, um, about the optics of it. I don't mm -hmm. think that we should be uh, solely driven, especially in such serious moral issues, by optics. Uh, I realize that uh, it, it is very possible that some people would object to this idea of a cruel and unusual sentence being passed, but as a curious setting of, uh, as I said, it is a label. If the court is is wrong on the issue, the fact that it is called something very gruesome doesn't change the fact that the court is wrong, and the fact that this is, in our view, plainly constitutional and morally uh, 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 permissible should not be obscured by what we call it. And I'll just add one point to that, which is. Mm -hmm. Given how serious the right against cruel and unusual punishment is, given how absolute um, that right seems to be, uh, I think there's all the more reason to um, to express disagreements or, or enforce a high standard for that right to prevent the content of that right from being diluted um, to to a case where, like many other charter rights, we uh, happen to see prima facie infringements by virtually any kind of state action whatsoever. And that dilutes the right and the urgency of the right and ultimately the, the moral force and the protection that that right confers. Excellent. Well, Juan, Kerry, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Obviously, this is a, a big issue. There's a lot to unpack in this case, and no doubt we will continue to do so on future episodes of Runnymede Radio and hopefully uh, with you both at future Runnymede events. But let me just thank you again for taking the time uh, to appear on the podcast today. Thanks for having us, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.